earlier today, um, I was mentioning the um, one of the uh, sort of descriptions of the um, uh, the mental processes that the uh, the Buddha describes, and you, you find talked about in the teachings, and um, this is known as uh, conceptual proliferation in English, or papancha in Pali, and so. Uh, um, uh, probably many of you are familiar with this, certainly familiar with it as a, an actuality, <laughs> but also uh, probably familiar with it as a, a concept. But uh, it's helpful to uh, to pick these things up and, and explore them and to uh, say, clarify how uh, uh, these these processes work, and particularly how they're described in, in the teachings. This can be very uh, useful to us to understand and to uh, help us not get lost in the, the realm of our, our mental creations. Uh, the, uh, the way that this, this uh, process is described uh, um, in uh, this one particular sutta, it spells it out very, uh, very clearly and in, in detail. This is the Madhu Pindika Sutta, uh, Sutta number eighteen in the middle length discourses. Uh, Madhu Pindika literally means the, the uh, sweet morsel or the the ball of honey, um, because it's such a delectable teaching that uh, when uh, at the end after the, um, this had been given uh, uh, originally. Um, laid out by Venerable Mahakachana, and then the, the Buddha confirmed that this was uh, a, um, exactly as he would have explained the whole issue. And uh, Venerable Ananda had been listening to this and saying, this is amazing, this is wonderful, this is the most gorgeous, this is the most delectable, the most kind of fantastic, delightful teaching. It's like a, a sweet ball of honey. Uh, what should we call this sutta, Venerable Sir? And he said, you can call it the honey ball sutta, Ananda. <laughs> so ever since then, it's been called the honey ball sutta. The Madhu Pindika, and uh, in the in the Sutta, it, it sets out how uh, things start off with a simple sense perception, like the eye views a form, the ear hears a sound, the the nose smells an odor, the tongue tastes a flavor, uh, the body um, perceives a, a tactile object, or that the mind perceives a, a thought or an emotion, whatever. So that's just, you know, taking, for example, the eye seeing a form. So that then with the eye seeing a form, and then uh, there is eye consciousness arising, and the three of those things coming together, the eye, the object, and the conscious eye consciousness, that is pasa, or sense contact. And then very, very quickly, after sense contact, just like the, the um, uh, neural impulse shoots down the optic nerve um, and uh, reaches the... Uh, the brain, then, and the the visual cortex, and you get um, feeling. So that the there's uh, the contact, uh, eye consciousness arises, and uh, and uh, with that coming together of the contact, there's a feeling. So even before we've there's a cognition that we've seen something, there's a liking and disliking or a neutral feeling. Then uh, the the Buddha. Pointed out that this is the the, the primary, or the uh, say the uh, the original impact of any kind of sense awareness is is already dividing things into like or don't like or neutral, yeah, you know, want, don't want, or da- you know, dangerous, <laughs> dangerous, uh, desirable, or don't worry about it. So that uh, this is a very very sort of, you know, primal way of. Um, Finding our way in our environment is this basic sensory activity. So, a sense contact, pasa, then leads to to feeling, pleasant feeling, painful feeling, or neutral feeling. And then, following along from that that uh, um, that feeling, there uh, arises sanya. So, the word, the Pali word sanya, usually translated as perception, is related to the English word sign. Say um, yeah, they're, they're connected in terms of their meaning and their origins. So sanya is the the designation <laughs> of a, 
of a particular sense contact. So like if it's uh, uh, a uh, eye, through the eye and through visual form, the sanya would be the impact in the uh, in the visual cortex that is registering red or green or um, sharp-edged or blurry or the the the, the basic uh, perception uh, or the forming of that. So this is before any kind of um, thought, before any kind of naming of it. But it's the the brain registering that that particular um, impact. So sanya is that uh, primary um, uh, say definition or, or sort of ordering of what is being perceived. And then rapidly following upon sanya is vitaka, and vitaka means to think. Vitaketi is the, the verb to think. So that's where the naming happens. Where so then the eye views a form, and um, it recognizes black. <laughs> To, uh, I see this, uh, this, and, I, and then the, the Vitaka comes in and says, microphone. <laughs> but uh, the, the simple naming of a particular object. And uh, then from uh, so far, so good. This is all uh, not very complicated. And uh, the, um, uh, say, the, the whole process of, of uh, experiencing is not really giving rise to much in the way of, of dukkha or, or say, insecurity or dissatisfaction of any kind. So um, uh, up to this point, it's also happening very, very quickly. And then uh, the trouble begins with vitaka leading to papancha. So then, then that thought then leads to associative thinking so that the mind remembers um, you know, other uh, associations connected with microphones or um, connected with uh, the um, you know, the memories of, of like or dislike or opinions and so you know microphone is not something that's particularly emotionally loaded for me <laughs> probably for most of you as well unless you're sound engineers uh, but um, the where uh, we can keep things just at sanya and vitaka, the per perception and naming, then life stays very, very simple. And it's just a you know, feeling, perception, and the, and the simple naming of an object. Um, and as we, we've uh, referred to a few times in this, this retreat, just the, uh, in the herd there is only her the herd, in the scene there is only the scene. When the, the mind can stay at that uh, simple categorization and uh, apprehension, uh, the receiving of, of sense objects, then everything is fine and dandy. It's all very simple and clear. But the, uh, uh, as we know, that the, the things just don't usually stop at that naming point. They, the strings of association are like, well, that's a really good microphone. I think we want that. Really, is a good system. I think you know, back at our center, you know, the system we've got is really rubbish. You know, you know, I've been meaning to change it for a long time, but you know, that other bloke, you know, he's got such strong opinions, he won't change it. You know, <laughs> this is papancha. And again, some of you might be thinking, he's reading my mind. How did he know that? But <laughs> I'm not. It's just the, this is the way our minds work, that uh, we uh, uh, are prone to thinking, to remembering, to conceptual, conceptual proliferation, prolixity, the mind um, setting off and, and running with ideas and thoughts and, and projections. And just today, uh, Nietzsche was asking me if I'd ever read a, a book called um, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers, which is, uh, for those of you who are not familiar with it, this is a, a wonderful book by a, um, a scientist called Robert Sapolsky, who uh, works, spends part of his time at Stanford University in California and part of his time out living amongst the baboons in Kenya. And uh, he, he's a, uh, um, he really has spent a lot of time with baboons, so... <laughs> And uh, when you read his, his book, it's a lot about baboon life and baboon politics. And uh, and he also gives all of his baboons wonderful biblical names, so they call things like Rebecca and Obadiah and Ebenezer and uh, Hepzibah. And, uh, <laughs> it's wonderful, glorious names. But uh, it's uh, the basic um, thesis of this particular book and, and where it gets the title from, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers, is because if you're a zebra, then you are on the menu for the average lion 
missed out on the uh, uh, on the, the savanna. And so, um, if you if you're a zebra and you see a lion, uh, a hungry-looking lion coming towards you, um, you need to get stressed fast. You need stress. You really want stress. You want your heart to start beating. You want that adrenaline to go pumping. You need to to get lots of uh, uh, energy to your to your legs, and you want to start running. And so, uh, you want maximum stress actually. <laughs> to to uh, as the lion starts to chase after you, you need to to uh, to uh, get the system cranked up uh, as much as you possibly can. So, in that stress situation, uh, you need to have your anxiety levels very very high. You need to get afraid, because fear is what's going to save you. The zebra that says, "Well, ah, lion schmeier," you know, <laughs> who cares, you know. The ones who felt like that ended up as breakfast. So it's the ones who didn't think like that that, that uh, survived. So they need to be afraid, and they and, and they need to, to to move quickly. So they need to they can shut off their digestive functions, shut off the reproductive re- reproductive functions, get as much sugar into the system as possible, get the heart beating rapidly, pump the whole system with adrenaline, and go. <laughs> ASAP. Yeah. move as quickly as possible and then within a couple of minutes one of two results will have happened either they will have got away or they'll have been caught and they'll be being eaten so they only need to stay stressed for a couple of minutes and then um, so if they've got away then they don't need to, to keep the stress reaction going because the lion's given up and has gone after somebody else or they're they're currently being turned into breakfast and so their worries are over. You know. <laughs> There's no need to sustain the stress reaction because the worst has just happened. So there's no need to be afraid anymore. So it just switches off. It's also why if we, if any of us who've seen these um, uh, uh, wildlife programs uh, in the past, um, you see these things on the David Attenborough or the, in, the, in the States in the, on the Discovery Channel, you might have wondered how come when you see some, you know, a couple of lions tucking into a, a zebra or a wildebeest, how come their friends are just grazing nearby? To us as human beings, it's quite disturbing, isn't it? Like, don't they care? You know, you see there's some zebra having its guts ripped open and being chewed upon, and then there's three or four other zebras just nearby, just sort of happily grazing. So looking over, and there's Cousin George being, cho- you know, being... Being uh, being eaten up, and you think, how callous? How can they? How can they be like that? But they know, if George is being eaten, I'm not. <laughs> so don't worry about it. And because they can't think, they can't project into the future. Well, oh, tomorrow that could be me. <laughs> then they don't make a problem out of it. Hence, zebras don't get ulcers. But we, as human beings, we have the capacity to remember. Oh, George got it yesterday. <laughs> And you know, if you do the statistics, then how much longer is it going to be until I'm on the menu? So uh, we so we can remember the past and we can imagine the future. So uh, we as human beings, we don't just get that stress reaction going for two minutes. We can keep it going for a couple of months, you know, or or years. So we get ulcers because uh, that uh, that stress reaction is sustained through our papancha. <laughs> through our, our conceptual thought and our capacity to remember and to to imagine. So now, it's, it's not as though memory is not a useful thing or the imagination and projecting into the future. They do have their, their purposes. But when that, uh, as we can tell just from this example, is when they, they overspill their boundaries um, and we start imagining or we, we can't let go of painful things that have happened in the past or we can't stop imagining um, painful or difficult things that will happen in the future, then we create ongoing anxiety. That stress reaction is sustained um, you know, for hour after hour, day after day, and week, weeks after week after week. And so we we can make ourselves ill and have you know, all these different uh, ailments that that beset society. So if you want to avoid ulcers, then you need to work on the papancha, <laughs> because it's uh, that the the habit of buying into our thoughts, believing in our thoughts, and uh, creating images of past and future and, and going off and inhabiting them 
you know, building castles in the air and going and living there. You know, that's what uh, causes us so much distress. So uh, this conceptual proliferation, then the papancha is actually not the end of the whole sequence. The the last part of, of, the, of the sequence uh, is what's called papancha sanya sankhara. And that is, um, I, th I think the phrase is something like, this is the, the multiplicity of thoughts and perceptions that um, the mind produces and which beset the heart. So, brief translation. Papancha sanya sankhara. So it's like the, the, uh, the whole array of, of thoughts and perceptions that um, yeah, uh, are prone to prolixity, to to uh, complexity and elaboration and which beset the heart and so um that uh, then is described by the end of, by the time you you get to the end of that process well, by the time we've got to papancha sanya sankara then there's me here and the world out there and this state of tension between the two of us either um tension with uh, I, uh, something that I want that I haven't got or something that uh, that I, I want to get away from that I'm afraid is going to uh, get me or there's a a duality the 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 subject object duality is is sort of rigidly um uh fixed into into place and there's me here and the world out there and there's this state of of tension and dukkha arising from that so being able to to track this process and seeing how it works just from a simple perception and of course you know it happens very very fast <laughs> So the development of mindfulness and wisdom is a lot to do with learning how that, that process works and then training the, the mind not to, to follow that. So that uh, uh, I was describing this little practice this morning about how to, uh, when you see that the mind has wandered off into some kind of conceptual uh, uh, labyrinth, uh, wandering off into thoughts and associated strings, to take the trouble to follow it back, follow the string of thoughts and associations back to where it came from and uh, this might seem uh, um, not a terribly fruitful exercise um, but uh, my experience of doing this is that it's very very revealing because over and over again we realize that when the mind gets caught up in excitements and fantasies or fears and, and anxieties or um, getting lost in the past and or, or rewriting the past I, I was very fond of of rewriting you know rescripting how things might have been in the past. Uh, it's an amazing amount of time I spent in my early monastic life re-scripting <laughs> how things could and should have been. And it, often it would be like 10, 15, 20 minutes before the mind, the, the wisdom factor would wade in and say, but it didn't actually happen that way. <laughs> that didn't happen. <laughs> it wasn't that way. So there's no need to get upset, there's no need to get excited, no need to get worried. That didn't happen, and it didn't happen ten years ago. <laughs> but our mind does that, doesn't it? We kind of go back and revisit uh, mistakes that we've made, or glorious moments, and or things that were sort of memorable or painful, and uh, we go and re-inhabit them and bring them to life. So, uh, if we take the trouble to to um, catch that process whenever we are uh, aware that the mind is caught up in in a, a, in a proliferation to to catch it sort of like like sort of <laughs> knitting a butterfly you know? like sort of catching that thought so it's a very appropriate symbol since psyche the the greek word psyche also means not just the mind but it also means butterfly so a psychologist is someone who studies butterflies so, <laughs> so we we catch that particular fluttering um, piece of, of papancha, and then we uh, follow the the sequence of, of thoughts, the, the associations, uh, back to where they came from, and that every time we'll notice, oh, it was just a a random thought that popped into my mind, or there was a, a smell from the kitchen just triggered a, a memory of a of a particular food, or a, that uh, the sight of somebody's shawl uh, triggered a, a memory of yeah, uh, Aunt uh, Aunt Matilda's dress, and following it back, we realize, oh, it was just a smell, it was just a sound, it was just a random memory. That's all. And how, when we get to the the source, the origin, it's it's extremely simple. 
utterly un unburdensome or uh, and uh, uncomplicated, and that uh, as you trace it back, whereas you at the end of the the, the string in the Papancha Sanya Sankar piece of it, there's me here and the world out there as a very solidly, definitely divided uh, experience. Uh, that the 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 further you trace it back until you come back to the source, the less there is a, a sense of a me here and a world out there, and there's just hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting, touching. In the herd, there's only the herd. In the hearing, there's only the hearing, the seeing, smelling, tasting, touching. There's no sense of self uh, uh, embedded within that. It's just the 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 world as it's experienced. So there's a a, a great uh, master of the Korean Buddhist tradition called Chinul, who developed this method, and he talked about this a lot. And he, his the term he used for it is in Korean. I'm not sure the Korean for it, but the English translation is "tracing back the radiance." And there's a, a book of his of his teachings, I think, translated by Robert Buswell, that uh, has got that title, and it describes this very uh, uh, very fully and completely. It's a very helpful guide and it's and it's a uh, using the quality of mindfulness and and uh, and careful attention to unpick the the tangles of of papancha and to keep bringing the mind back to the simplicity of of knowing feeling hearing seeing smelling tasting touching and then uh, acknowledging well how does the world feel what is the experience of the world when it's when it's simply <coughs> This way, when we are, the heart is simply open to, to sense perception. And uh, when when we do this, when when that is carried through, there is a, a wonderful simplicity and an easefulness and a a sense of integration that is here when when that process is followed through. So I would really encourage. This is a simple exercise. Um, And it's also kind of revealing that the, the tracks that the mind <laughs> moves down, you can get familiar with your own mental habits, whether you're a, uh, whether you're a greed type or an aversion type, if you're a really good complainer, you realize how, you know, even, <laughs> even, uh, you know, something that's, uh, you know, a pleasant feeling or a pleasant sound, you know, can lead to a real, uh, uh, something to criticize or complain or grumble about. <laughs> or if you're a greed type, that you know, even a painful feeling can lead to something that you are uh, that you're fantasizing about uh, acquiring. The, so this simple process also can help us to get to know the patterns that our our mind moves in, the patterns of conditioning. And by getting familiar with those patterns, then really freeing the heart uh, from that. Now, the, uh, a, n- a number of times during this retreat, many times I- I've been talking about how what we experience is the mind's representation of the world. And this is also, uh, we, we, we tend to think, I'm, you know, I'm in here and the world is out there and I'm, I'm perceiving the world. But uh, it's, uh, I find extremely helpful, useful to, to keep recognizing that we don't experience the world, we experience our mind's representation of the world and uh, this is also something that the, the buddha pointed to he says the world the world what is the world the world is the eye the world is the uh, visual forms the world is eye consciousness the world is the ear the world is is sound the world is ear consciousness you know the world is uh, the nose the world is uh, the tongue uh, and uh, and so on the body uh, the mind it's uh, mental objects, uh, mind consciousness. That's the world in 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 the uh, the terms of his dispensation. And so that uh, even though obviously we can talk about the the planet as uh, being the, the the world or the the stars and the, the galaxies and the, the and space being being the world. And on one usage of the term, uh, you can say that's that's a reasonable, you know, fair enough usage. But it's important that, to recognize that when when uh, we are trying to to live in the reflective way and to develop the qualities of uh, of wisdom 
know, developing understanding and and freeing the heart, then the most helpful way of understanding the world is just exactly as as I've been describing that the the world is sight, sound, smell, taste, touch. That's the <laughs> the world because that's the world as you know it. Now again, it's not uh, like I was saying uh, a couple of days ago. It's not as though we're saying that the you know, the whole world is an illusion just conjured up by us as a, as an individual. It's it's not that. There is a substrate. There is a basis on which our perceptions are are formed. But what we know, what I know about the world, is the the image the the that uh, my senses weave together, and that the the coordinating uh, capacity of the 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 mind sense the mano uh, the 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 uh, the cord that's the 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 sixth sense that draws the first five together and coordinates them that that's the world I know is the world that's put together by by my mind and and is formed through through these perceptions that that's all I can know that's all I have ever known is uh, is through that agency of 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 this mind and um, that shouldn't be seen as a, a as a, a limitation, but but more recognizing. Well, yeah, that's <laughs> that's the program. That that's the world that we live in. So that's the world that we we learn from, and uh, so that it's a uh, in this respect, recognizing that it's all a lot closer to home. You know, our our world um, is is formed, colored, shaped by the 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 language that we've learnt. And uh, the experiences that we that we've had. There's a speaking of, of um, Robert Sapolsky and uh, why zebras uh, don't get ulcers, which I, is uh, I feel should be is required reading. There's another another book that I've been quite fond of that uh, is uh, almost as as excellent. And this is called uh, "Don't Sleep, There Are Snakes." And uh, this is a, a book that was written um, by a former Christian missionary who went out to the Amazon jungle uh, on a mission to um, to convert a particular tribe to Christianity, but ended up getting converted himself. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. <laughs> and it's, a, it's an interesting tale because so the the language of this particular group, uh, this this um, tribe, the Piraha. Uh, their language doesn't seem to be connected to anybody else's language. They have a whole uh, completely different order of uh, of symbolizing the world. And I won't go into boring detail because I know talking to other people about books that you're enthusiastic about can be extremely testing. <laughs> but a few small snippets in this, just to give you a taste. So the Piraha have no concept of number. So many many tribal peoples around the world they have a very simple set, uh, idea of number like one two three lots yeah, those kind of uh, basic numbers or numbers up to ten but the piraha have no concept of number they can't think the thought one or two or three so you might think that mathematics is a sort of the basis of life in the universe or how you know everything is all organized through ones twos threes fours fives and sixes and so on. The Piraha do not do number. Number has no meaning for them. There's this, this interesting little incident in the book where um, the people, they're, they're very intelligent people and they, they also live in communication with the other tribes. And so um, at a certain point they, they come to this the, the missionary and they say, now you've been talking about this number stuff and that we're really interested because we think these guys up the river are ripping us off. You know, we think, we, we know they're not being fair but and we think that this number stuff that you talk about might help us to figure out how they're not being fair. So can you teach us? You know, we'll, we'll, we'll put some effort into this. We'll really give it a go. And he said like, for eight months he took like this, you know, the half a dozen of the brightest people in the village and sat down with them and tried to walk, walk them through like <coughs> what a number was. You know, one and now like okay, two, you know, one stick and then two is two sticks and three three sticks. And, and he said, <coughs> after eight months of working together with a half a dozen of the brightest people in the village, there wasn't a single one of them that could count up to ten. <laughs> it just had no meaning. Now, isn't isn't that mind blowing? 
Well, it's so ordinary to us, but they just don't do number. It just has no meaning to them. Say, look, there's, okay, there's, you know, one stick, and two, and three. Well, that's round. <laughs> and that's, that's got two different shapes in it. That, 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 that's not the same as that. And all the things that we would say, well, no, there's three of them. You see, now, that, now there's two. Now we've got three. But they just wouldn't be able to rank things in that, that manner. They also um, can't talk about things that they haven't either seen or that there's an eyewitness of, that someone's been an eyewitness of. So when um, our, our dear friend is trying to explain the Battle of Jericho and how the walls came tumbling down, they go, wow, that must have been a big sound. That must have been really noisy. Wow, there's water. And, the, and, and so that the whole thing came down. Whoa. So what did that look like? Said, well, no, I wasn't there. No, it was a long time ago. And they go, so you didn't see it. Well, so you know, who told you about it? Well, they, no, I read about it in the book. Nobody told me about it. It's, it was thousands of years ago. They say, so you, you didn't see it. And, and you don't know anybody who, who saw it. And he said, no, 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 it's a story. It's a story. And then he said, as soon as it was clear that there was no eyewitness, then it wasn't as though they said, okay, well, that's boring, or we don't believe you. It's just they just disconnect. Like it has no meaning. Uh, a story or, a, a, or the words just stop having meaning if they weren't personally witnessed. Interesting. <laughs> If somebody, they watch somebody walking down a path and they go around the corner and someone says, you know, where's, you know, where's Susie gone? Or the, the, what? Well, she went down the path. Where's she gone? Who? What? Because <laughs> the person's out of view, so they stop. You can't really talk about them if they're not around. <laughs> they don't do color. They don't have they don't have words for individual colors, so the, the, they they can compare things to to natural qualities. So like black, he he figured out black is known as old blood, the, the color of old blood, like blood when it's gone when it's dried up. But they they can't they have no way of saying green, which in the Amazon is kind of unusual. <laughs> They they can't they they don't distinguish color. Mind blowing, isn't it? But they are. He said the, the the interesting thing is that they are extraordinarily cohesive society. They said they're not all you know saints and and wonderful people. They can they still have their problems, but they are extraordinarily well integrated society. And their language is is extremely complex. And so that uh, it took him years and years, like about 15 or 20 years, to really master the language. Um, even though it doesn't have things like number or color or, or time, you know. But uh, they have a, a huge range of different verb forms to talk about uh, experiences and, and such like. So he actually had to become like them in order to, he had to think like them in order to learn the language because it was so different. And then by thinking like them, his whole relationship to biblical Christianity just sort of <laughs> fell to pieces. Just uh, so anyway, um, uh, just to not to, to bore you any more with that, but it's uh, that degree of difference, uh, that degree of uh, seeing the world differently, seeing the you know, world free from our, our familiar constructs. You know that just uh, being able to entertain that uh, kind of. Uh, Helps us to that kind of difference, or that how others can can see the world so um, utterly uh, differently from from the way that we see it. It helps to put into perspective our own sort of constructions and 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 preoccupations, and recognize, oh yeah, I I I make a world that's you know, numbers are real. Yeah, one, two, three, four, five, six. You can even do minus numbers. Yeah, you know, minus one, minus two, minus three. You know. Seems normal, absolutely unremarkable. You can say black, brown, you know, brass-colored, 
absolutely normal, of course. <laughs> but uh, re th these are these are constructed realities. These are fabricated perceptions. They don't have any intrinsic existence. That number is something our mind creates. It doesn't have an intrinsic existence on its own. Personhood, <laughs> individuality, time is constructed. So their whole relationship to 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 time in this particular tribe, that uh, you know that there's no real way of talking about the past or the future, even though they have all these verbs. That. <laughs> uh, you, you're, uh, you're unaware. We are unaware that we we create our concepts of of time and then make them make them real by our sort of communal belief in them. We say it today is Friday. You know, <laughs> this is this is Friday and it is nine fourteen and fifty seven, fifty eight, fifty nine. <laughs> that how many of us would would uh, when we come in here at seven thirty think? That seven thirty is a is a is a, a, a kind of Western construction. <laughs> this is a, a construction of our own conditioning. We think no, that the time is half past seven. It's, it's, this is what the time is. It is. But yet, time is a is a is a construct. Our individuality, our name. You know, the, these are all constructs, and we live with them. Uh, uh, for very, you know, for for useful reasons, but the the more that we take them to be absolute truths, then the more we're we're stuck in sila pata paramasa in attachment to conventions. When we can recognize, oh, seven thirty, what does that mean? <laughs> you know, for a piraha, seven, seven what? <laughs> what what's a seven? Well, there was a, a friend of a friend of ours in uh, California, he, he, and he was a, a computer scientist. He used to work for the Rand Corporation. Uh, the, uh, his daughter was a very very gifted artist, but she was almost completely what they call disnumerate. And so he was saying that he was really pleased by how she was doing well at school, and but she really couldn't do uh, mathematics very well. And he said he, he thought she was improving, and then one day, at, you know, this was at the age of nine or ten, she said, "Dad." It is is four less than seven, or is it, is it bigger? Is it, oh, okay, <laughs> still got some work to do here. <laughs> but it was quite a sincere question. She's had, like the Piraha. She hadn't quite got this number thing figured out. She was a brilliant artist, absolutely extraordinarily gifted uh, graphic artist. But uh, is is four bigger than seven? So that uh, to be able to reflect that our world is a, is a created world, is a, is a compounded world, then helps us to to be a loka vidu, to know the world, to to believe that the world is is real rather than it's just our own particular version and and constructed and dependent and compounded. Then we're always going to be tied to the world. There's a, another of the oh, very. Uh, Significant suttas of the the Buddha is one. It's a dialogue between him and a, a devata called Rohitasa, and this is a, a teaching that the Bhikkhu Bodhi, who's one of the great translators of the Pali Canon into English, he, he says this is the most. He feels this is the most significant teaching in the whole Pali Canon. So this devata Rohitasa um, uh, encounters the the Buddha and and uh, is speaking with him, and he said. Uh, yeah, when I was a, a human being uh, in, my, in my last life, I was a, a yogi and I had the ability to walk through the sky. I was a skywalker, uh, not Luke Skywalker. This is Ro <laughs> Ro Rohitasa Skywalker, relative. Yeah, probably a relative from. Uh, doesn't work for industrial light and magic. So uh, Rohitasa said I was a skywalker and I had this you know, ability to, to stride through the sky and I could walk from. From one side of India to to the other in, in um, no great time, and I made this vow uh, that I would I would walk until I reached the end of the world. But even though I, I walked for, uh, not, uh, through the sky nonstop for so many years, still I couldn't reach the end of the world, and I died uh, on my journey before I'd reached the world's end. And the Buddha said, "Yes, Rohitasa, that's how it is." Uh, 
you cannot reach the end of the world by walking. But I tell you that if you don't, uh, if you don't reach the end of the world, you won't, you won't reach the end of suffering. And so uh, that's a compelling statement. You know, yes, you can't reach the end of the world by walking, but if you don't reach the end of the world, you won't reach the end of suffering. So it might sound like a bit of a disappointment. But he said, but the the world, Rohitasa, says, in this body, in this very fathom-long body with its thoughts and perceptions, there is, the, uh, there is the world, there is the origin of the world, there is the cessation of the world, and the way leading to the cessation of the world. So in this very life, within the sphere of this, uh, this living experience that we have, he says, here is the, the world, <laughs> is a... Uh, is, uh, ex- uh, to be known through the thoughts and perceptions uh, via the agency of this fathom-long body, this two-meter-long body, a bit less, a bit more, with its thoughts and its perceptions. This is uh, In this fathom-long body is the world, the origin of the world, the cessation of the world, and the way leading to the cessation of the world. So in that same way, it's like when, you, when we recognize this is where the world is created, that through our thoughts and perceptions, that we, we build this world. It arises here. Uh, it's an arisen thing. It's a caused thing. It's dependent. Then also we can see that uh, it arises there and therefore it ceases. That there, This is a, a, a process that is known through our awareness. And as this, and in that same formulation, which is, as you'll notice, is very close to the formulation of the Four Noble Truths. So... Uh, it's is equating the the world, the, you know, seeing the world as a solid, separate thing, with with dukkha itself. That insofar as that we make the world solid and separate, then there is suffering. But when that is understood, when the world is known, when the when that whole process of uh, of arising and ceasing of perception, seeing the the world taking shape, uh, arising and forming, dissolving. When that is known uh, for what it is and, and, and how it works, then uh, just as when we see dukkha, dukkha being caused, dukkha arising, dukkha ceasing, then the heart is freed from from dukkha in a similar way. Then, when the when the heart uh, uh, knows the world, understands the world, sees that the coming and going of of the world, and then it's able to be freed from identification with the world. Is is uh, say liberated from that. In a similar vein, there's a um, another very uh, significant sutta, and this one's from the in the Diga Nikaya, is a <coughs> Kevada Sutta, and uh, in this this particular discourse, the, the Buddha's teaching this, uh, t- talking to this layman Kevada, who's come and asked him some questions, and and uh, the Buddha tells this story, saying how once uh, once upon a time. <laughs> There was this monk who had um, developed some skill in meditation, and um, and but uh, uh, during the course of of his meditation, then this this question, this thought arose in the mind of this this monk. Uh, I wonder where it is that earth, water, fire, and wind fade out and cease without remainder. Where is it that the that the, in a way that where is it that the world ends? Or or you could also figure the same or rephrase the question as you know i wonder if there's a a place or a way that that the world uh, things of the world earth water fire and wind will fade away and not arise again that you know things will will cease and that the world of, of form and and the world of things will, will cease and, and not arise again you know where 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 might i find the end of the world so this question arises in his mind and so uh, he, uh, the Buddha describes how uh, eager to pursue this question, then he uh, absorbs his mind into meditation, and then the the pathway to the different heavenly realms appears in front of him. So he uh, he sets off on this uh, this path and makes his way initially up to the the uh, heaven of the four great kings, the four guardian deities of the of the world. And so this uh, this monk uh, arrives in the. The realm of the four great kings, and says, um, 
Ah, I've got a question. Um, uh, I've been I've been puzzling about. Can you tell me where it where is it that the four great elements, earth, water, fire, and wind, fade out and cease without remainder? And they go. Oh well, well we are the guardian deities. You know, we, we are, our job is to look after the world. But, oof, you know, yeah, we're kind of in charge of earth, water, fire, and wind. But you know, that's that, that kind of question is way beyond us. You know, you should you should try upstairs. You know, go to the go to the Tavatinsa heaven. You know, Lord Indra is up there, and uh, there must be some either Lord Indra himself or some of the deities in his retinue. They'll they'll be able to help you out. You know, this is way too profound. We're just the kind of we're just the uh, the bodyguards here. You know, the, the kind of the bouncers who sort of keep the troublemakers out of the world and you know it's our, our, we're just the security here <laughs> with the loka parlors so you know we're, we're just the muscle so you better you know try try upstairs you know they're they're more skilled in this kind of thing than we are so then uh, the 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 fellow makes his way up to the tavatinsa heaven the heaven of the 33 and then <coughs> asks the retinue of of indra and then they don't know the answer. He asks Indra, and Indra says, "Oh well, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm king of the this uh, heaven of the thirty-three uh, deities, but well, that philosophy is beyond me. You know, I can, I can fight wars with the, with the, uh, the asuras, and you know, I can, uh, I, I have a, um, I enjoy a good relationship with the Buddha, and I like to receive teachings, but you know, this, this kind of wisdom stuff, you know, this is really beyond me. So you better try upstairs. You know, so then." One realm after another, then this this monk journeys up through the, uh, the through the Yama Devas, the Tusita heaven, the, the heaven of those who delight in creating, the heaven of those who delight in the creations of others, and all the way up through the all of the the sense world, the sensory the seven sensory heavens, up into the Brahma world, and finally into the the uh, the realm of Mahabrahma. So, and each one is saying, "Oh, sorry, we don't know. You better try upstairs." And so, finally, he thinks, "Okay, well, I'm now in the Brahma Loka, so I really ought to be able to get some answers here." So, meets some of the the Brahma gods, and uh, so the uh, says, "Yeah, uh, I wonder if you can tell me, uh, oh great beings, uh, that uh, you are very glorious and very wonderful and very very beautiful. I'm I'm in awe I'm in being in the presence of such wonderful uh, and bright, brilliant, vast." Deities as yourselves, uh, you know, I have this question: you, uh, Where is it that earth, water, fire, and wind uh, cease without remainder? Where is it uh, that um, that uh, the, the world you know, comes to an end? And they say, "Oh, well, you know, you've, you've probably come to the right place, but we can't really help you because you know this is this is the kind of question that, that Mahabrahma, yeah, Mahabrahma w- would be able to answer. But you know, that's we're, we're just the ministers. You know, we we just uh, we're the office staff here. You know." <laughs> You'll need to to wait till Mahabrahma will manifest, and you know. But if you wait a while, then maybe Mahabrahma will actually uh, appear. You know, we never know when 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 the Great One will will manifest. But you know, if you if you wait a bit, then it could be that uh, the 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 Holy One will will appear and might be able to answer your question. So then, uh, as you would expect, then uh, the the fellow waits around for a little while, and then a light starts to appear, so glow appears in the in the distance, and then boom, suddenly, Mahabrahma manifests. And so the, the monk goes up to Mahabrahma and says, Mahabrahma, oh, oh great, uh, great, uh, great one, um, I have a question that I wish to ask you. This has arisen in my meditation. I wish to know, where is it that earth, water, fire, and wind fade out and cease without remainder? And Mahabrahma says, I am Brahma, the great Brahma, the almighty the creator and ordainer of all things, the one who's first into being and the, the uh, one who orchestrates the universe and is the master of all things. Well, yes, thank you very much. Um, <laughs> uh, right, yes, yes, I, I understand that you are, you know, the, the great Mahabrahma, but I, I didn't actually ask that. I asked, um, <laughs> where is it that earth, water, fire, and wind fade out and cease without remainder? I am Brahma, the great Brahma, the Almighty, the ordainer of all that have uh, have uh, that have come into being and who will come into being. You know, I am the the Lord and Master of the Universe. Thank you very much. Yes, but um, that wasn't actually what I asked. And so, of course, this being a Buddhist story, they do this three times. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, after the third time, that the monk says, "You know, that, that wasn't what I asked. Could you tell me where is it that earth, water, fire, and wind fade out and cease without remainder?" 
then, as it says in the Sutta, then Mahabrahma took him by the elbow and led him to one side and said, <coughs> Look, you're embarrassing me in front of my retinue. Yeah. I don't know where earth, water, fire and wind fade out and cease without remainder. And you have done wrong in coming all this way up to the Brahma world to come and ask me when you know, you're a disciple of the Buddha, you're a bhikkhu, you know, you should actually go and ask the master because this is his territory and he and he's the one who can actually tell you uh, how to understand this. So then duly chastened he shoots down, uh, comes out of the Brahma world and comes back into the the uh the ordinary life of the monastery and goes off to, to see the Buddha and so then recounts this story and the Buddha says, Well um you know, like a uh, uh, a land seeking bird that um that uh, you know f- flies out from the ship and, and goes in this direction, that direction, you know, north, south, east and west and, and eventually it has to come back to the ship because it hasn't found land. Then you've eventually been seeking all these other directions and finally you've had to come back to to me, uh, where you should have come in the first place. <laughs> so, the the question you've been asking has actually been phrased in the wrong way. So this is why you weren't getting an answer, because you shouldn't have asked, you know, where is it that earth, water, fire and wind cease without remainder? But rather, what you should have asked is, where is it that earth, water, fire and wind can find no footing? Where Where is it that um, they uh, can, uh, say... Uh, make no traction where they can they can find no footing and the answer is and then the pali is vinyanang anidasanang anantang sabato babang which is uh, the uh, the consciousness uh, anidasanang which is non-manifest which is invisible which is which is formless anantang which is limitless infinite sabato uh, babang radiant in all directions yeah. so the and this is uh, uh, words uh, uh, and uh, adjectives that, that describe the, the pure heart or the the, uh, the enlightened mind. Here it is in this uh, this awakened consciousness, this vinyanang anidasanang anantang sabatopabang. Here it is that earth, water, fire, and wind can find no footing; they can make no traction. And here also, long and short, and coarse and fine, and pure and impure can find no footing. There is no no uh, a landing place for them there, and here it is that uh, that all these things cease. That uh, they they are they are held in check. They are um, say they are they are understood and they they are known uh, without delusion. And so, this uh, is a very helpful collection of of um, terms. The and. Uh, this uh, yesterday evening, uh, Sister Brahmavara was talking to you about the uh, the factors of enlightenment, the seven factors of enlightenment, and uh, in in, uh, in a similar vein, these these three qualities are in a sense boiling down some of the the seven factors of enlightenment to to uh, like a, a simpler representation, so that the enlightened mind is uh, being described here as. Um, it's uh, it's conscious. There, it's also a very unusual usage of the term vinyana, because vinyana usually means a discriminative consciousness. But in this respect, it means a like a uh, an all-encompassing awareness. So there is there is knowing, there is awareness. The, the enlightened mind is is awake. It's aware. Anidasana means it's it's invisible. It's non-manifest. It has no form. It's formless. Um, Anantang, it's it's uh, infinitely uh, commodious. It it has an infinite capacity. It has uh, it's limitless in its uh, capacity to accommodate all things. Sabato pabang, uh, which uh, paba is light, uh, and uh, so sabato means like in, in all directions. So sabato pabang, like radiant in all directions. There's also other renditions of the same phrase where it's. Uh, instead of pabang, it's it's pahang, which is uh, means accessible. So sometimes the same phrase is translated as accessible on all sides. But either way, it works. <laughs> the 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 terminology works well. So this is describing the pure heart, and this isn't sort of just something that's in a story from the time of the Buddha. But also, this is your pure heart. This is your your mind. This is talking about that when um, that. Uh, 
that that there is a freedom from obscurations when the heart is the the hindrances have been dropped and the 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 there is a a full wakefulness and attention to the present reality then this is what's experienced there is the there's awareness there's the uh there's a a spaciousness a a, a kind of all encompassing um, capacity and there's a brightness there's a quality of of uh, luminosity of radiance the the mind is, is bright and and clear and so that uh the um when the the heart is in tune with dhamma in tune with its own nature then this is how it appears so that these are the natural qualities of the of the pure heart the the enlightened mind the knowing uh, emptiness or spaciousness and brightness these are so the natural af- attributes so in the thai language um there's this uh 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 a similar string of of terms which they they would often use some ajahn char or uh, ajahn buddha das or, or others would use which uh, alliterate very neatly which is sawang saat sangop which means sawang means radiant saat means pure sangop is peaceful purity radiance and peacefulness and so often ajahn char would say this is the these are the characteristics of the dhamma when the dhamma is is realized when it's awakened to when the heart knows the dhamma then it's at the attributes that are experienced at that at that moment are purity radiance peacefulness so that uh, that when the heart is is awake and pure in that way then uh, this this image of um the long and short and pure and impure and coarse and fine being able to find no footing it's rather like might, might not be so appealing but like a kind of teflon the non-stick heart that uh, whatever happens painful or pleasant beautiful or ugly coarse or fine pure or impure whatever earth water fire and wind takes shape as uh then there is that non-stick quality that uh, uh it can find no footing there's no traction there's no nothing nothing uh, snags nothing sticks but there's a a, a kind of a, an openness to that uh, the flow of perception So these are just some some images to to bear in mind and when the when the heart is free from uh conceptual proliferation in that quality of nipapancha as i said uh, this is one of the epithets of the buddha nipapancha one who is free from complication that uh, who is free from conceptual proliferation that's a that even though when we we read the suttas and the buddha's descriptions of things you think wow his mind is so complicated <laughs> this extraordinary range of intricate analysis of experience and the world and and uh, a fantastic array of of images and similes and uh, incredible knowledge you think wow the buddha's mind must have been really complicated but it's uh, i think it's important to recognize that nip the buddha was nipapancha one who's free from complication so that the the enlightened mind or the awakened mind even for an uh, a buddha who's has that extraordinary intelligence and capacity for for knowledge and information and uh, analysis of of things that the 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 felt sense or the the, the buddha's own experience of the present moment was nipapancha free from complication and uh i think i have maybe have to ask ajahn mahadisak to correct my pali on this but i think there's a phrase i know ajahn pasno is very fond of of quoting it but it's something like uh ni which means don't complicate the uncomplicated is that right oh very good <laughs> so don't complicate the uncomplicated so reality itself dhamma itself is supremely uncomplicated supremely uncomplicated so refrain do the best you can to refrain from complicating it <laughs> this is the mind's habit it was always wanting to dress things up and decorate and elaborate and explain and just to to see that complicating process the papancha the, uh, 
papancheti, the complication, and to to recognize that the the stress of that, the the tension of that, the dukkha of complication, and to recognize we don't have to do that. Just let go, <laughs> and then right here in this moment, the the heart is free from that, and there is an openness to the present. Or like Lumpur Sumato would say, ignorance complicates everything. Avicca pachaya sankara. So when there's avicca, when we don't see clearly, there's complication. When there's vijja, when there's knowing, then there's no complication. So on that note, I will offer these thoughts for your consideration. <laughs>